Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll resume the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I finished up Book 4, Chapter 5 in The Lord of the Rings, The Window on the West, in which Faramir and Frodo put each other's souls on trial and emerged as friends. This week, we're covering Book 4, Chapter 6 of The Lord of the Rings, The Forbidden Pool. So even though Faramir and Frodo are getting along now, there is one sticking point left unresolved. Gollum. He stands in for the possibility of it all falling apart, especially regarding the nature of the Hobbit's mission. So now we have to redo the trial in this chapter, but externalized. Frodo's not on trial, he's being forced to act as judge, jury, and, by proxy, executioner. When Faramir wakes Frodo up, it instigates old fears in him. He's worried that Faramir might have changed his mind, come to attack him, all that work was for nothing. The mood of melancholia from the previous chapter gives way to suspense and mystery. Faramir reassures him, almost in a kind of over-the-top way. He uses the smokescreen of the moon. We gotta, you gotta come out, Frodo, check out how beautiful the moon is. Oh, by the way, I have a little problem I think you can help me solve. Unlike the previous chapter, Faramir's suspicions aren't for Frodo anymore. He's trying to deflate the situation so that Frodo will help him. This chapter is a triumph of atmosphere and mood, a change-up from the rainbow imagery of the previous chapter. Frodo shivers in the cold. The sound of water is oppressively loud all of a sudden. And the window, the waterfall, works differently in moonlight than sunlight. Now instead of the rainbow, it's, quote, a dazzling veil of silk and pearls and silver thread, melting icicles of moonlight. That's such beautiful, eerie imagery. It feels almost like we're on the moon. But Sam can't stop to look. He's on a mission, chasing after Frodo and Faramir, who neglected to bring him along. Sam is always chasing after Frodo. He only stumbled into the quest by eavesdropping, first on Gandalf at Bag End, and then on the council at Rivendell. He nearly drowned himself this day by Frodo's side during the breaking of the Fellowship. And he will chase Frodo again at the end of Book 4, taking the ring with him into Mordor as Frodo is stung by Shelob and then captured by orcs. And the imagery is very similar here to those later chapters. Shadows chasing shadows, climbing up narrow steps through black passages. It's ironic that Gollum will trap them in a similar place, because he's the one who's trapped here. Up top, there's no rail, no balcony. Nothing to stop you from plunging to death, but your own willpower. And I love the stark, beautiful imagery. The blacks and whites and grays, all the colors bleached from the world. Just cold, dark water, white foam, pale mists and silver fumes. The snow in the distance glinting in the moonlight. These are the nightlands, as Frodo thinks. Wondering where in all this impassable mist his friends might be lurking, alive or dead. But Faramir hasn't brought him here just for the view, and the companion Frodo was here to find isn't one of the Fellowship. It's Gollum, a dark shape in the white light, slipping into the dark water like he's going home. He swims as fast and straight as an arrow, Tolkien writes, just like the arrow he may be about to receive. It's another trial by Faramir, another test and potential trap. He arranged this with his men while the hobbits slept, as soon as they were aware of the incursion on their territory. But now, instead of defending themselves, the hobbits must defend Gollum, which is kind of a harder task. Will the hospitality still apply, or will the rules of Gondor finally take hold? After all, he's not one of the hobbits. Or is he? 
Frodo took responsibility for him, as Faramir pledged not to touch the ring. You could say those are kind of inverted promises. Faramir promised to stay away from the precious, whereas Gollum swore on the precious. Frodo begs them to show mercy to Gollum, as Bilbo did. Sam comes close to asking them to shoot, and those are his own legitimate fears of Gollum's influence, struggling against his natural kindness and pity. Faramir again shows us his thought process. Turns out he hadn't forgotten about Gollum any more than Sam. He was just willing to let the matter slide until it was important. Now it is. Gollum has come to the sacred refuge of Hanathanun, forfeiting his life, Faramir says, lest he give this place away to the Dark Lord. But Frodo immediately deflates the tension. Gollum, he says, doesn't even know you're here. That's how well hidden your refuge is, that he can be practically on top of it and not know. He's lured here by something else. And while both Faramir and the reader assume Frodo was talking about the ring, he really means fish. Just fish, nothing more. Gollum's just here to get a tuna roll for happy hour. And this is powerful writing, because we're primed to consider Gollum to be a threat, based on the mood and dialogue in this scene, not to mention our past experiences with him. Frodo is reminding us of how pitiful Gollum is, how unable he is to be happy in any social context, how little he wants beyond the precious. He didn't come here to burn it all down. He came here for fish. He came here to hunt, that's all, as innocent as any beast in the woods, happy just to have the fish as the moonlight glitters off its scales. That's more beautiful to him than any memory of Numenor. But Faramir and his men say it's still a death sentence just to be there. For them, Gollum hasn't earned mercy in the way Frodo and Sam did. But is mercy really something that should be earned? What happened to the quality of mercy is not strained. Frodo keeps emphasizing that Gollum lives in ignorance of them, and that even if he did know, he's starving. Are your rules supposed to matter more to him than food? And finally, Frodo appeals to Gandalf. Gandalf spared Gollum. I don't know why, Frodo says, but I had faith in Gandalf, and so I have faith in Gollum. We should be charitable to the least among us. Moreover, Frodo admits, Gollum is our guide, so if you kill him, our quest fails. This is the hardest pill for Faramir to swallow. He could make peace with his brother's corpse, let Frodo go on his way with Isildur's bane. But Gollum really feels like the enemy to Faramir, and Frodo's mercy is barely able to keep the arrows of men at bay. Faramir would rather kill Gollum than let him give away Hanathanun to the orcs. Those are the stakes of being at war. You can't just enjoy fish and peace in Athelion, not anymore. So in order to spare Gollum's life, Frodo has to betray him and turn him over to Faramir. It's an agonizing choice, the perfect gauntlet for our protagonist. As always with Frodo, there's an element of self-sacrifice. He tells Faramir that if he fails to win Gollum over, and the arrows must fly, let them claim him, Frodo, first. Let the failure be mine, that I could not get him to trust me. There's a Christian martyrdom angle in there, bound up in Frodo's tortured empathy for Gollum, as he realizes that, there but for the grace of God, go I. Not for nothing does Tolkien write that Frodo is being Gollum-like as he crawls across the rock toward his guide. In order to win Gollum's trust, Frodo has to become Gollum, which also applies to the cost of bearing the ring. Frodo hears Gollum muttering to himself about fish, lovely tasty fish, the only thing I like, and fantasizing about throttling men and hobbits and all the thieves who stole the precious from him. I've talked before about how we never see Sauron directly in the story named after him, but we see a series of other characters who stand in for aspects of him, what he would be like if we actually interacted with him. And Gollum, I think, is like the most 
pathetic version of Sauron, where you see him reduced to addiction, addiction to his own desires. The hobbit who loved to crawl and swim has been reduced to paranoia and grasping need. There's something childlike about him. Even though he's talking about throttling everyone who ever did him wrong, it's in the way a kid mutters to himself about how he'll get revenge. I mean, I I know Gollum is violent, but it's kind of hard to remember that in this moment because he seems so pitiful. And Frodo pities him, even though Gollum also disgusts Frodo. Pity and disgust are at war for him, just like they were for Bilbo. All Frodo has to do, he realizes, is say the word, and Gollum is gone forever. He doesn't even have to do it himself. And Tolkien stacks the deck like that. He makes it easy on Frodo to make us aware of the choice, that Frodo is making the hard choice by sparing Gollum. But the rightness of that choice is what propels him forward. A bond was forged between them, a promise made. That may seem naive, but I think, as with Boromir's dreams, it's, it's about needing something to hold on to, like the memory of Gandalf. There's worth in us yet. There's dignity that needs support. Yet now Frodo has to use that spark of connection to strip Gollum of what's left of his dignity, taking advantage of his trust, and the name Smeagol. Gollum resists at first, and rightly so. He's correctly suspicious of Frodo just happening to show up here. Then again, Frodo is telling the truth that Gollum is in danger. That's not enough, though, so Frodo has to lie. He has to evoke the precious to get him moving, saying, I'll tell the ring to make you choke on that fish. You can never have a fish again. He's just inventing powers for the ring now. But Gollum believes him, because the ring for Gollum is this all-consuming fetish object that can do anything. There's no limit to its power. It's basically God. It's the source of all meaning for him. Gollum has no Numenor to pray to, no Shire to imagine and tell stories about. This is it. And as always, the ring betrays the people who believe in it. Gollum comes forward with his fish like an errant dog, Tolkien writes, like a pet dog, just to emphasize the betrayal of what Frodo is doing. He feels so wretched because it's like kicking a pet dog whose only crime to you is loyalty. Frodo is doing it to save him, but Gollum is absolutely right that this is tricksy and false. That's why this is so well written. It's, it's all of Gollum's worst fears confirmed. Why would he ever trust the hobbitses again? When Frodo tells Sam how bad he feels, Sam replies, well, that's just because it's wrapped up in Gollum. Anything you get wrapped up in Gollum is going to turn badly. And that's not incorrect, but Sam still doesn't understand Gollum. He doesn't understand the struggle Frodo is going through to keep faith with both sides, as Frodo thinks. When they get Gollum into the cave, he looks pitiful and powerless. Yet Tolkien writes, Gollum is hooding the malice in his eyes. He's at least partially putting on a show. And that should remind us of the Emmy Muiel, how Gollum went from violent to pitiful in a heartbeat. But unlike the hobbits, Faramir doesn't need anything from Gollum. So he can cut through the bullshit. Clarity, that's Faramir, no distortions. Gollum claims he's done nothing wrong. Faramir says, yeah, right, you've probably done tons of shit wrong, but that's not what I'm here to judge. Gollum's soul is above Faramir's pay grade, for better or worse. He's here to deal with the military threat that Gollum represents. Gollum uses pity as a weapon, mocking the men as wise and just for turning on poor little Smeagol. Faramir doesn't take the bait. He makes no grand claims to how wise and just they are, and he shows good faith by cutting the ties that bind Gollum. Or rather, allowing Frodo to do so, understanding the importance of their connection, rebuilding that trust. This is a trial, too. Gollum and Faramir are fencing, literally staring eye to eye. Faramir can tell there's a lot hidden beneath the surface there, but as with Frodo and Isildur's Bane, Faramir doesn't want to go there. And those two decisions are linked, those two omissions, because Isildur's Bane is exactly what's made Gollum this way, all closed off inside. 
Gollum promises to keep the secret, as he promised to serve Frodo, setting off a series of formal exchanges and promises between Faramir and Frodo as to what will happen now. It's an attempt to give some sense of structure to what's happening, protocols they can abide by. And there's a, a mild tone of farce to this, Tolkien's tongue is in his cheek. Frodo and Faramir are exaggerating their pieties, because what's actually happening here is they're setting the rules on fire. Faramir wasn't supposed to let any of them live. Especially not Gollum, now that he's seen the pool. He's releasing Gollum into Frodo's charge with serious misgivings. That's why he asked Frodo to come back to Minas Tirith and make good on what I just did, back me up to my dad. But this is how oaths work. Trying to summon a better world into being. Charging each other with promises that can't really be enforced. Hoping we live in a world where that still means something. It's the heir of Numenor, as Faramir would say, but it's also an echo of the Shire. Sam still doesn't like Gollum, but he likes all these promises and protocols. This is how the hobbits talk. They love their rituals. They love their sense of structure. Silly as the words may seem, they carry weight because of what goes behind the words. Their souls on trial, committed now to their course. Gollum is bound to Frodo all the more after this. That's why Sam is so unhappy about it. Gollum's life hinges, Faramir says, on his service to Frodo. So how about that? Where are you taking him? And that almost unravels the whole thing, because Gollum isn't actually keeping his word to Frodo, he's taking him into a trap, where she waits for them. So Gollum stays silent, and Frodo is forced to answer for him, as he's been doing the whole chapter. Gollum was taking us to a pass near Minas Ithil. Minas Morgul, replies Faramir, a whole history of pain behind those two names that he shares now. The city was once Minas Ithil, twin to Minas Tirith. Then it was taken by men loyal to Sauron. Led, though, by Numenorians, the kings of men, whose pride led them to accept rings from the Dark Lord and wound up bound to him for eternity. Tolkien has already framed the Ringwraiths as the collective guilt of mankind with regards to Aragorn. Now we see that dynamic on a larger scale. The fall from grace Faramir talked about last time, the high men giving way to twilight, squandering the gifts Elendil brought over the sea with him, is given its most potent form in the Nazgul. This is the end result of humanity climbing the fiery ladder, seizing unlimited power like Boromir tried to. They wanted to conquer death, and so they did. Now they're living ghosts, as Faramir says, a fate worse than death. Isildur built that city, and in a way, he doomed it when he kept the ring, demonstrating, as with the Nazgul, that humanity might not deserve to inherit Middle-earth. So when they turned his city into Minas Morgul, it was more than a threat. It was a mockery, a twisted monument to the shame of mankind a mirror image. Gondor was supposed to be the watcher on the walls, but they opened the door and let the shadows in. So the decay spread through Ithilien, the rot against which Faramir fights a losing battle. Tolkien leans into the horror imagery here to prepare us for Minas Morgul. Shapeless fear, Faramir says, sleepless malice, lidless eyes watching. Faramir begs Frodo not to go that way, and we understand why. We've met the Ringwraiths just on their own, wandering through other people's territory. Imagine a whole city with them in charge. But, as Frodo says, they're only here because there's no other way. The bitter irony is that even with all the nightmare fuel Faramir's delivering, still sounds like a better shot than just rushing the Black Gate would be. After all, Faramir can't even say for sure what waits for Frodo along the pass of Kirith Ongol. The stories just don't go back that far. The men of Gondor are so estranged from the land that used to be theirs that the truth is lost in the mists of time. All that remains is the fear in the faces of old people, the ones who remember, just barely. It reminds me of how only the memory of the shadow persists in the Shire at the start of the story. 
Frodo carries the shadow with him, around in his pocket. If he turns back now, all he'll do is corrupt wherever he takes it. The ring broke Boromir. What would it do if Frodo unleashed it on Minas Tirith like a plague virus? Frodo tells us it would become Minas Morgul. Tolkien delivers the unshakable image of two nightmare cities grinning at one another across the wasteland. Twins again at last. What can Frodo do in the face of that but trust that they're still good in Gollum, despite Faramir warning him otherwise? The alternative is death. As Frodo admitted, he no longer hopes he'll succeed in his quest. And in a way, he doesn't. But the ring is destroyed anyway, precisely because Frodo keeps insisting on bringing Gollum along. Faramir is heartbroken. He and Frodo began as potential enemies, suspicious of each other. Now they part as friends, which is what makes it so painful. Faramir feels like he's abandoning Frodo to die, betrayed by Gollum in enemy territory. All he can say is that Gandalf wouldn't have wanted it this way. Maybe, Frodo says, but Gandalf's not here, just like the beauty of Minas Ithil is only a memory now. The city that was is gone, and Gandalf can't help Frodo now. It doesn't matter what he would have wanted. The choice belongs to us, the mortals. We have to die. We have to say goodbye, as Faramir does here, admitting that he doesn't think he'll ever meet Frodo again, that their paths will part like those of elves and men, as he was saying last time. But maybe not, Faramir says as the chapter ends. Maybe we'll meet again, and if so, we'll have more stories to tell, even Gollum's story. We'll bring that darkness into the light because we'll be in the position, as Faramir says, to laugh at old grief. Time takes everything away, but that can be a blessing as much as a curse. Tears dry. Wounds heal. Everything becomes a story you can tell to a friend. It's something that, as Faramir says, is beyond even the seeing stones of Numenor, all the godlike power that humanity chases over the edge. An end to exile, a return to home. That's what Faramir is longing for, what Sam experiences in the final moment of the story. Well, I'm back. So I've been wrapping up every Lord of the Rings episode by talking about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out about 20 years ago and how they handle each stretch of the material. And the movie of the Two Towers gets the atmosphere of this scene just right. He got the moon on the water, the shadows closing around, and the actors sell it too. Elijah Wood really gets Frodo's wretched desperation for mercy that he can't even fully explain. All he can say is, this creature is bound to me and I to him. He's one of us. Really, this part of the movie, though, is a showcase for Andy Serkis. You get his fish song getting across that incongruous glee, all his violence made childlike. His doggish devotion to Frodo as he comes crawling with the fish in his mouth, and then the pain of his betrayal when he just cries, Master! They were filming at Mangafero Falls, and they were filming in winter, so a fire brigade had to hose off all the snow. But you know it still had to be freezing for Circus to crawl along it in his wetsuit. He's a pure professional. Jackson and company put the emphasis on Gollum's physical torment, Faramir's men beating him up while the captain turns aside. And this is really what brings the Gollum half back. Remember, there was that great scene where Gollum and Smeagol were arguing over what to do next, and it seemed like Smeagol had won that fight. But Frodo's betrayal and his rough treatment at the hands of men is what brings back the Gollum half, which I think is interesting, emphasizing that Gollum is, at least in part, a product of the world around him. And I love the little detail that we're seeing uh, Smeagol from behind and then suddenly he starts patting his own back like that's the Gollum half, like reaching out and, and pretending to comfort his other half. It's so, so creepy and perfect. 
and makes a great parallel to Frodo elsewhere in the scene, realizing the ring is taking hold of him. It's now too dangerous to put on. That mirrors the, the Gollum half coming back to claim Smeagol. Sam wants Frodo to put on the ring to become invisible and escape, but Frodo realizes he won't be invisible to Sauron. It'll let Sauron see him. And yet, despite that, Frodo will still violently defend the ring from Faramir. That's what the ring taking hold of you does. It, it doesn't give you anything anymore. It only takes away. And I think it makes for a very potent metaphor for addiction in that way. But the ring is ultimately given away to Faramir by Andy Serkis turning towards the camera and going, My precious! Ah! Perfect. Absolutely perfect. No notes. 10 out of 10. And that changes the story structure relative to the books. Faramir does get his uh, chance for the captain of Gondor to show his quality moment. And then his men inform us that Osgiliath has fallen. And that's really what inspires Faramir to bring the ring to Gondor, despite Sam proclaiming it's a burden that needs to be destroyed. And as I said before, this is definitely a repeat of Boromir's arc in just kind of a less interesting way. And the change is lampshaded by Jackson and company. There's that, that line they threw in there when they are in Osgiliath and Sam says, oh, we weren't even supposed to be here relative to their book characters. It's true. This section does work as an intro to Osgiliath, a location that we do need to be aware of geographically for events in Return of the King to hit home. It's a buildup for the war to come. And this is in part, I think, just the awkwardness inherent to Two Towers being the middle section of the story. You're dealing with events in Rohan and you want to make those seem very dramatic and important, but you need to pivot in the third movie to Gondor being way bigger and the battle there being even more important. So you do kind of want to set that up in Two Towers so it doesn't seem like it's coming out of nowhere. Faramir's character arc does get that proper beat he needs. He gets that moment with Sam when Sam says, you proved your quality after Sam tells him about Boromir's fall. That it was the ring that drove Boromir mad. And there's a great uh, shot of a tower collapsing just as Sam says that as if to suggest that's what happened to Boromir. His tower collapsed and Faramir, you will do the same if you uh, try to take the ring. I think it is, Faramir's struggle is elongated to the point where it loses all shape. It becomes less distinct. Again, he's just kind of a shadow of Boromir in the movies, at least in the two towers. Frodo, though, gets the spotlight in a really powerful way, I think, in this part of the movie, where he's he tries to give up the ring to one of the Nazgul. And there's this like look of horrible relief on his face, like, I'll be free of it. I'll be done and the world can end and my story can end and it'll all be over. And that reflects what's going on with Faramir, because the ring race are, of course, corrupted men, you know, destroyed by their pride and greed. So it's a great parallel that Frodo is actually trying to give up the ring to one of them. But then Sam comes along and forces him to bear it. They take a tumble down the stairs and Frodo in his rage pulls out his sword on Sam. And we get this great mirrored shot to earlier in the Two Towers when the hobbits first encountered Gollum. And there was that POV shot of Frodo holding the sword at Gollum's throat. And now we get the exact same shot, but it's Sam he's threatening. That's how far we've fallen. And Sam says, don't you even know you're Sam? You're, you're treating me like Gollum. We've... We've completely switched places and we don't know who we are or where we are anymore. And whatever you want to say about the stretch of the movie, I, I can't complain about Sam's big final monologue, which links all the stories in the movie together as the novels can't, being split apart into book three and book four with the characters on their different adventures. Sam's monologue brings it all together, gives you the sense that all these far-flung adventures are still linked. They're still the, the same questions, the same struggles, and that... As Sam indicates, we are living in a story to keep story going. And I think that's, that's as good as it gets. That's, that's a distillation of, of Tolkien's ethos right there, even if the specifics are different. So that's going to wrap us up for this week on The Lord of the Rings. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Podbean, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a whole bunch more benefits. You can follow us at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can follow me at poor Quentin on Twitter. Next week, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum sit back out on the road, only to descend into the worst place yet, Minas Morgul. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with Book 4, Chapter 7 and 8 of The Lord of the Rings.